welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me at the other end of a telephone line is Caroline Kilborn. Good morning, everyone. Hope you're all doing well today. Do you want to introduce our guest, Mom? Yes, I do. Uh, the book is a, a Bakery in Paris, and uh, it's a novel, and the author is Amy K. Runyon. And uh, I have a, a classmate whose last name is Runyon, so I wonder if they're related, maybe. <laughs> okay, so this is this is a page turner, let me tell you. And it, it's set in in two different um, in city in the 1800s and the 1900s, so it's it's extremely interesting. And um, <clears throat> excuse me, the, our author writes fiction that celebrates history's unsung heroines, and these are two of them. When she isn't writing. She's active in, in the community as a speaker and educator. She's a passionate amateur baker with a special talent for chocolate cheesecake. <laughs> and uh, you'll see how that works in. There are numerous recipes in this book because it's, a bake, it's about a bakery. And so that, that makes it even more interesting. She lives in Colorado with her amazing husband and usually adorable, <laughs> two usually adorable children and two always adorable <laughs> <laughs> and two always adorable kitties and a dragon. I don't understand that. But anyway, <laughs> maybe, she can, maybe she can tell us about that. Welcome to Writer's Voices. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for having me. And the dragon is actually a bearded dragon. He's about 18 inches long, and he lives in a terrarium in my son's bedroom. His oh. name is Draco. He's very friendly. Oh. <laughs> we have a house dragon. Yeah. House dragon, how cute! Well, I think eighteen inches you can kind of handle, right? Oh yeah, he's about about the length of a forearm, and it's mostly tail, really. Oh. You know? oh. Yeah. So, Amy, this a bakery in Paris. It looks like is maybe your seventh published novel. Correct. All right. Tell us a little bit about some of your other books, how and how they're similar and how they're different to this one. Well, you know, it was, you know, it's been an evolution. I started writing um, books that were set in um, the 1600s, actually, in colonial Canada, um, because there was a number of women who were sent um, as mail-order brides from France to Canada in the late 1600s to help populate the colonies under the auspices of Louis XIV. And it was super, you know, was, I found it super interesting when I learned about it and decided, yeah, that makes that would be, you know, great fodder for a couple of books. And so I wrote those, and they were not a great commercial success at first. And so I transitioned to the hot new thing, which was World War II fiction. And I wanted to do something different, so I moved to uh, – I decided to talk about the Russian female fighter pilots in World War II, known as the Night Witches. And that was my um, first book with a new publisher um, called – and it was Daughters of the Night Sky. And I continued on for several books – working on war-centric World War One and World War II-centric fiction, Girls on the Line. Um, my fourth book is about the female uh, telephone operators in World War I uh, that were American troops that were sent over. Fascinating research on that one. Across the Winding River um, is kind of a, um, a misconnection sort of story connecting a German woman and an American man and his daughter in the present day. Um, and that was a, a lot of fun. And it actually tied into the following book, The School for German Brides, about a woman who is a young girl, really, who's sent off 
to a Nazi bride school to learn how to be a proper German wife. And it was absolutely based out of history and very horrific. But then a bakery in Paris, I decided, you know, we've all had a lot of war fiction lately. Um, so I wanted to talk a bit about the aftermath because I don't, I don't want to over-glamorize what's happening in war. And I don't think that any of my books really do that. Um, but a bakery in Paris deals with women from the same family in the same little corner of Paris dealing with Paris in her darkest hour, which is, um, we have two, uh, two of her darkest hours because she's got a long and storied history. Obviously Paris does, but, um, we have the siege of Paris in 1870, which is a time period that we don't discuss much. And it is basically um, the precursor to World War One when Germany invaded, you know, Prussia invaded France and got as far as Paris. And, walled, and it's a walled city and basically sealed the city off. And it was a really hard time. And it was followed immediately by the Paris Commune, where the common people, after the defeat of France, the common people of Paris rose up to govern themselves. And it was put down horrifically. And, um, you know, it was a, the, the emperor was disposed, deposed. And so the people got to govern themselves, but the troops put them down and the, the rule of the elite came back, but we, um, it was never replaced by a monarchy. And it was a time period that I knew that we hadn't discussed much in historical fiction before with a few exceptions. Um, but I thought it would be a great fodder for a novel. But in order to make it a little bit more accessible, I decided to have a second timeline is set in 1946, the post-war period, because I feel like so many books is like, oh, and the Nazis left and everything was fine. <laughs> Let's move on with our lives. But it was really a dark period. If you know, if you look at other post-war books, a beautiful example of which is Jacqueline in Paris um, by Anne Ma and how, you know, the people became very closed. I mean, we have this perception of the French being a very kind of snooty, closed off people. And it was a method of self-preservation after the war because people learned that they couldn't trust other people. And it was a dark period. And a lot of that kind of aloof nature, I believe, was I thought you can find its origin in the World War II period. And I wanted to show the period when Paris is really coming up out of the ashes. And we have our character, Micheline, who'd lost her father and her mother's gone missing in the last days of the war. And she is trying to care for her two very young siblings at the age of 19 with nothing but her wits to help her out. So um, it was I, I thought it was a good there were two stories that were similar enough that they could really um, elevate each other. And. I, what I found fascinating is how much history, how much research you must have had to have done on each of these areas, you know, each of these time periods. It seems like a lot, mm -hmm. you know, to just have one historical time period in a book requires a lot of research and a lot of detail, but to combine two, it's like double yeah. the work, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you know, really. the Paris Commune was a lot more work um, as far as the research goes, because it was a period, I mean, I've written, what, four other war books. Um, so, that you know, I had a lot of research in my back pocket already for the World War II. And plus, we're dealing with the post-war, so we're not worried about specific timelines. Um, like, oh, this battle happened, then this happened, then. So I had a little bit more freedom, but I did do a lot of research into... Um, 
how the Red Cross went about trying to reunite families or to find missing persons. That was where a lot of the research for Micheline's timeline went in. Whereas Lisette, um, I knew a bit about the Belle Epoque Paris, which is a period right after the seizure of Paris and the Paris Commune. But to learn about, you know, I had to find out the timeline because it was a very concise timeline with the events of the end of the seizure of Paris and the beginning of the Paris Commune. When, you know, the, it happened to happen, events, you know, events had to happen in a specific order. And reading um, firsthand accounts of what Paris was like when it was sealed off, I thought was very important. And there were some wonderful resources um, in the original French that helped to kind of bring that to life. And, of course, I was writing a lot of this book when international travel wasn't yet possible. We were just, you know, a lot of the time it was like we were all vaccinated, but we couldn't, they really hadn't opened up the borders to France yet. So I had to rely on domestic sources, but I was fortunate enough to be able to find a lot. And I was able to get to Paris the summer afterwards while we were in copy edits. So I was able to put in a few sensory details, but um, the book was really kind of in the can by the time I got to actually Oh, wow. Now, I assume you've been to Paris before. Oh, yeah. I lived in France. I have a master's degree in French, and I lived in France um, for two years, um, not in Paris. I lived in Avignon in Provence in the southeast of France, and Bayeux in Normandy in the northwest of France, which wasn't that. It was an hour or two train ride from Paris, probably two-hour train ride from Paris. And, um, yeah, but I'd spent a, you know, a certain amount of time there um, just because I was nearby and you know, it's, it's, it's a hub, obviously, to get to where I had to go. Right. So I would right. take, I'd t- probably been to Paris four or five times before I wrote a bakery in Paris. Now, the bakery is set in Montmartre. Yes. And that is um, one of my favorite parts of Paris. It probably is my favorite part. I just, mm-hmm. I really, I, something about just when you're there and, um, the, you know, the, the artistic history of the region, mm-hmm. but I didn't realize that it was kind of, um, cause now it's a very desirable area of Paris. Mm-hmm. It is. It's very chic, very hip, very yes. boho. But that, according to this book, was not always the case. No, it was, um, it was working class Paris. 18, the 18th arrondissement, which is Montmartre, the 19th La Villette, and 20th, which is Malimontan, are all the regions of working class Paris. And the higher the arrondissement, the more so that is, I think. And um, it was where I had to set it in Montmartre. Um, I thought about setting it in La Villette because it's a beautiful name, but I decided it's more recognizable. And it was where, uh, because a lot of the Paris commune, the, the difficulties and the battles happened in those three arrondissements. But in, in uh, the battle between the people of um, Paris and the Versailles uh, for the cannons that the people had purchased to defend their own part of Paris. That battle for those cannons happened in Montmartre. So it's a pivotal point in the book, and I felt like it needed to be depicted, and they needed to be right there. Right. So, And I, I actually found a bakery, you know, living on Google Earth and Google Street View as I was during that time. And I, I modeled it after an actual bakery. It's a lighter shade of green, but so I made it my own. I made it a nice emerald green. Um, <laughs> but, um, and it, it's called the La Galette des Moulins. Um, sadly, it is no longer uh, in operation. It closed down about six weeks before I got to Paris. And oh. so. 
<laughs> yes, I didn't realize. We walked to the bakery all the way, you know, and it's a, you have to hoof it up the hill. Um, and we, we walked to the bakery, which is in a very chic part of Montmartre, off the Place du Tetre, um, which is where they have, like, the artists out painting, and they have, um, you know, cafes and all sorts of things, but not a lot of bakeries, which is an important part of the book. And um, it, we go, and it's all boarded up, and they have, like, you know, posters and stuff on the on the plywood. Um, and it, it was, and I went back the next year, um, you know, about eight or nine months later, and it was even more you know, just abandoned, and it was very, very sad, but in a way, it was kind of um, nice to know that I, w- I wouldn't be disappointed in the reality of it. It can all, Lisette de Micheline's bakery can live perfectly on in my head, um, and I don't have to be disappointed by, you know, it's owned by somebody who's rude, or the pastries were, uh. you know, under the head, or less than the ideal, but, you know, it's okay. I would have loved to have seen the inside of it, but, um, you know, it, it, yeah, it, I would probably, yeah, if, if I ever tracked down the owner, just to have a half an hour inside would be pretty special. But Well, there is a bakery on the corner of that plaza that had incredibly good macarons that I brought back last fall. And um, I'll look up the name. So the next time you're there, maybe you can check that one out and maybe that will take, take you, you know, take a place as um, yeah. <laughs> it, it was yeah, a I did, very I did a macaron taste test when I was in Paris <laughs> I was in Paris in April and I did a taste test of, uh, of like some of the big names of macaron basically if I saw macarons for sale I went and bought one <laughs> and you know for science for science right right and, of course of course and I, I actually took notes and decided what my favorite ones were <laughs> and yeah it was great fun great fun but yeah and I like of course I had to try Lodre and uh, Pierre Hermé and the big names, but I also found like a random place that sold vegan mackerel. Oh my gosh! And, yeah, wow. they were not awesome, but oh. um, you know, <laughs> but if you're vegan, like I and you know, I I should try some of the other flavors. But I had a rose flavored one that tasted like Marie Antoinette's dirty bathwater, and it was not good. <laughs> um, no, that but, does not sound know, appealing. I, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so. Um... How did the, these characters, these particular women, how did they, how did you build those characters? Well, it, well they were characters of circumstance. Now, for Lisette, our character from the Paris Commune, 1870-1871 time period, I wanted her to be from one world, the the world of the upper class and the, you know, the, petit, the grand bourgeois, we'll say, the, the, the upper middle class. She lives in a very swanky part of Paris. Her parents are, have money. She's not titled or anything, um, but um, she's definitely uh, from a family that's so socially conscious, so mo- uh, and you know socially mobile, and definitely aspiring to greater heights. And but I wanted her to to uh, come to understand the plight of the common person and by doing so by falling in love with a member of the national guard and to, to see his, the world, to see Paris through his perspective and for her to gain an understanding of the world that she didn't have when she was younger. And for Micheline, I I knew that I wanted to deal with the, the, the problem of children that were left orphaned after the war and um, the tragedy that uh, so many people um, endured and how she had to 
to lose a lot of her agency. You know, she was at an age, you know, you think of 19 year olds today, they're, you know, deciding between what college to go to or, you know, what, you know, internship they want to take and, you know, planning their careers. And the world is their oyster, more or less, for a lot of people who would have been in, in similar situations. But she has to do what she has to do to keep food on the table for her two young sisters. And so she's lost a lot of the agency over her own life. And her arc is really about recapturing that. Mm. Wow. Mom, do you have some questions? Well, I just wanted to point out that, that this book is so interesting because she has all these recipes in it. That, that sound just fantastic that these that they make in 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 Paris and and Monica you've been there so you know you taste, taste oh yes oh yes and uh, I don't know which you know I um, these are all things that you would make in a bakery right or that yes. you would find in a bakery so and they're written in a very um, how would you say it's not written out like a recipe in a cookbook it's written more like well here's here's what i did and here's what went wrong and here's what what worked and here's what i'll try next time so a very colloquial very um intimate mm-hmm. way Which it, of presenting the recipe yeah. so right. yeah because it's it's not a cookbook it's her notebook right it's lisette's notebook and um, micheline starts adding to it um, because I didn't want the trope of, oh, I found my grandmother's sacred, you know, great grandmother's sacred recipe book. I wanted her to add to it. I wanted it to be a working, living document. Um, and, but the recipes themselves are original, um, derived from original Karem recipes for the most part with a few of my own inventions. But, um, you know, that's the way he wrote his recipes. And it was interesting that they used the imperial measurements instead of metric, though metric was a thing when he was working. Um, but it was, uh, you know, I just adapted his recipes to make them a little bit more colloquial and to make them more, you know, adding in her own notes and things like that. But for those of you following along who are avid bakers, I would not suggest trying to follow them because they are, you know, put it in a hot oven. Well, what the heck is a hot oven? Which is, by the way, about 450 degrees. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it would be easier to find more modern recipes. So I'm helping people out. And on my social media channels and on my blog at www.amykrunyon.com, every week I'm going to be releasing a little teaser video and um, a recipe uh, that is either one of my personal favorites or from the book uh, that people can follow along, more modern with actual measurements that people (laughs) can use in their own home. And it's not like industrial quantities either. Um, Though I have to confess for the rose petal jam, I, I doubled the recipe and it made 11 jars. So it's a lot. I would not double the recipe again because it is a lot of jam unless you're giving it as gifts. So. Uh, that'll take a while. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah. do you have a favorite? Um, no, you know, that's that's like, um, oh gosh, from the book. Yeah. Well, I made clapouti. I made clapouti just day before yesterday for launch day. Um, and it was delightful. It's like a, a cobbler. It's very simple, but very elegant. French, the French have mastered that. And the, you know, the nice thing, everybody thinks that French baking and French cooking is very complicated, and it certainly can be. Some of the techniques take year, like macaron or take a long time to master. And I live at 8,000 feet elevation, so it's almost impossible. But some of these recipes, like the sable, which is a lovely recipe that I'll be sharing next week, um, it's just a simple butter cookie. 
but they are so flavorful, especially if you use top shelf butter and good salt. They are so flavorful with a nice in the afternoon with a cup of coffee or tea. Um, and I think that's just, you know, it's mastered the French art of simple elegance. Um, and so any kind of souffle is just lovely. Grand Marnier souffle any day of the week. Uh, <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit more about the the um, earlier time period. You know the the eighteen mm-hmm. it's eighteen seventy is that what time it's eighteen seventy to seventy one okay mm-hmm. and so there the emp there was an emperor at yes. that point and who was the emperor Louis Napoleon so was he a descendant of Napoleon Bonaparte I believe he is I believe he is okay and uh, yeah I should know that off the top of my head it's been a little while <laughs> since I was in the weeds on this one so yeah because it's interesting the thing that I don't really understand about French history or don't know about French history I, I kind of have a vague understanding they they kept going back and forth between being a republic and a monarchy and it's like yep absolutely and that and that you mentioned in the book where near the end where they're discussing you know how to move forward with the people controlling you know people ruling and and they're saying well every time every time we've done this in the past the the revolutionaries crown themselves emperor you know basically yep. so how many times did that happen you know, I think so the the French Revolution happened and they were a republic for a short period of time. They had a monarchy reestablished 12 years later and it lasted up until 1870. So I would say, you know, and I'm not I can't remember off the top of my head and I'm embarrassed, but um, I don't I think the monarchy stood for another 80 years or so or close. Yeah, about 80 years, 90 years um, until uh, but the Paris Commune is widely um, viewed as being unsuccessful because they were m- removed from power. But um, honestly, they, it was a republic ever since. So in the larger sense, even though the rule of the elite was put back in place and they had the Assemblée Nationale and, you know, you've got, you know, politicians from all, all over the spectrum as far as um, political beliefs um, from left to right. Um, they never had a monarchy again. So in the absolute sense, it was absolutely successful um, because a reprisal against, you know, the Versailles troops that were had been loyal to the emperor put down the commune in May of 1871 in, bl- in the bloody week is what it's called. And they murdered 25,000 communards over the course of not very long. And most of them without trial or those who did have a trial, it was a sham. Anybody who, especially women who um, were, they thought were, had been responsible, the pétroleurs, the, the women who were accused of burning down important buildings, um, they were put to death very quickly. But the reprisal, even from the grand bourgeois, um, was really strong uh, again because they thought they went too far. Just like the, Paris, the, the French Revolution, they went too far in executing the elite. And so the, you know, the Versailles went too far in executing the poor and the working class and the revolutionaries. And so it garnered a lot of support and France never had a monarchy again. And so ultimately it was successful. Um, and that's why, you know, there's a character that has a pretty big change of heart. And while it does seem a little bit disingenuous, 
it really does represent the change of heart that a lot of the grand bourgeois and lower nobles had in a in retali- in kind of a reaction to what was done to the the communar isn't that i find that really fascinating because isn't that similar to what happened in the irish revolution where when the english uh, just basically you know hung all of mm. the people that were responsible for the revolution and they were just kids a lot of them you know barely out of their teens. yeah absolutely well that it garnered so much sympathy yeah. for their cause that they that the english ended up losing control yeah absolutely and that's you know that's the you know i know that you know the the powers that be are so concerned with keeping power by any means necessary they they don't think enough about the the optics of what they're doing in those cases and um you know in the case of ireland as well i mean they've got uh, the irish had you know basically global support uh, at least in the western world uh for their independence because of how heinous the english were Sure, i bet this has happened over and over again where where somebody who seems to have lost completely ended up causing more change than they would have if they'd actually won that battle. It's like, you know, they lost the battle and they won the war in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Well, and we see that time and time again, if the side that, that wins or any side, the side that wins or loses, if they resort to excessive violence, like looting or what have you, they lose public support. And we saw that in, you know, a lot of the protests for um, Black Lives Matter. And even though they had had, you know, incredible support, they lost some of it because of, you know, a few isolated incidences of violence, you know? And so, I mean, it's it's important to think about that, that violence is rarely um, a good outcome Sadly, yeah. Well, not sadly, but I'm trying. I'm trying to express this well. <laughs> it's just that you will lose uh, people. You know, value safety a lot, public safety. And so when they see you know businesses being looted or people being senselessly murdered, in the case of the the Irish or the French, uh, the the communar, um, that will garner a lot of support. Yeah. yeah, and that's also the lesson you know that Gandhi brought was mm-hmm. by being peaceful they were able to gain worldwide support and the british again were you know reacted violently and mm-hmm. lost support and that also happened in the with martin luther king in this in the civil rights movement mm-hmm. so it does you know but so those are are better known examples of it but this this mm-hmm. was a one that probably a lot of people outside of france aren't aware of but that really um brings the lesson home now absolutely how did the so if the if the prussians were invading and they won right Mm -hmm. so then did they just leave paris well they 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 left and they took alsace with them they took the an a chunk out of eastern okay and so alsace lorraine Alsace-Lorraine um, became a, a German territory up until World War One, and then the Germans lost it again in World War One and took it back during World War Two for a while, and now it's French again. <laughs> okay, so why did they bother to 
invade Paris if they weren't going to hold it, if they didn't intend to hold it? Do you know? Yeah, you know, honestly, it's hard to think into the brains of these people um, necessarily, but they wanted control of eastern France and they had to dispose the emperor to get it. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, and I honestly, the the siege of Paris is just kind of the the, the or the, the setting for the opening part. But it was the commune that I really wanted to focus on um, and the uprising of the people. Um, because they, you know, the French army, they, you know, the, there's a huge arrogance and the French army always thought they knew better and they didn't and they lost and the, the people felt deceived by the government. And so that was really the significance of including the, the siege of Paris. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, um, Micheline, is that the okay, Micheline? Micheline. Mm-hmm. So she starts, um, taking, cooking going to cooking school and this would have been immediately mm-hmm. after world war ii did the cooking schools reopen like right away and oh some of them you know some of them may have never closed the problem was getting ingredients yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and so you know there were parts of paris that weren't occupied and i you know i think that they probably um, you know, I didn't, I, I, the, the baking school is basically completely fictional. I mean, I, I looked in, there was, a, a an old baking or cooking school, um, in the area where I set it toward the center of Paris. Like, and I it was very intentional that I chose to send Micheline to the, the nicer part of Paris, nicer part of Paris for these classes, because they wouldn't have had a, a swanky cooking school in Montmartre at that time. They just wouldn't have. Do, and, uh, but now they would. <laughs> Yeah, now they might. Now they might. Um, because the real estate is still going to be a little bit cheaper there than it would be in the center of Paris, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I spend a lot of time on real estate sites looking at, you know, sample apartments and things like that just for inspiration. But it's, you know, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating, um, you know, the, how the, the just the nature of the city has evolved. Uh, and the, the, you know, the demographic, of course, we have a huge um, immigrant population in the, up in that area in the 20th arrondissement in particular. And it's fascinating to see how the flavor of the city has changed. But, um, you know, so I said it in the center of Paris, but I have to think that a lot of these places would have tried to get back to a sense of normalcy as soon as they were able to get flour, butter, sugar and eggs. Yeah. It's ma- amazing what you can do with those few ingredients, isn't it? <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Yep. And vanilla. You kind of have to have some vanilla. Yeah, there. vanilla. <laughs> and then chocolate if you yeah, really want to. Yeah, I make wanna... my own. <laughs> yeah. yeah, chocolate, definitely chocolate. But I make my own vanilla. It adds a lot to a recipe. Really? And do you have that in, is yes. that in the book, how to make your own vanilla? No, but I'll probably do a video about it. It's very simple. You just have to leave it aside. I mean, you take... Some, you know, the nice long vanilla beans and you slit them and put them in a cute little bottle and then add um, like vodka or I use spiced rum for fun. And then you just let it uh, you let the favors infuse for about six months or more. You shake it every time you use it and you can top it off with more booze and um, <laughs> you keep it going for a while. And um, it's not bad enough Coke either, but it's great for baking. And um yeah, it's uh, and you can have fun mis- uh, you know matching the different vanilla beans because they do Madagascar vanilla doesn't taste the same as Tahitian vanilla or Vene- Mexican vanilla and you can mix it with different 
liqueurs like bourbon, whiskey, vodka, what have you. And it makes for a lovely addition to any recipe. What do, what do vanilla beans grow on? Is it a shrub or is it a tree or? Orchids. They grow out of orchids. orchids. You know, it's so funny. Wow. We, we associate the word vanilla as being bland and workaday and, and plain. And it is, it, it is so labor intensive. It's why vanilla beans are incredibly expensive. But they grow on orchid plants and they're dried orchid pods. And it's exotic and wonderful. And we just undervalue the flavor a lot. Whoa, orchids. That's that. All right. <laughs> like any orchids or only specific orchids? <laughs> Uh, probably specific ones. I, I, you know, I'm not an expert on that. But as funny as that, my kids have a subscription to National Geographic Kids, and they had a, a, a like a whole spread chocolate versus vanilla, <laughs> and like uh, talking about the cocoa beans and the vanilla pods, and it's fascinating. Oh wow. Wow, that is very cool. So, um, <laughs> you are listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Amy K. Runyon, author of A Bakery in Paris, which <laughs> is a historical novel which is set in two different time periods, um, the 1870s and the post-World War II, um, immediately post-World War II. Um, Amy, why don't you read a little bit from the book for us today? Sure. And you know what? I'm just going to start off at the beginning. All right. So chapter one is Lisette from the 1870. So this is September 2, 1870. Come away from the window, Lisette. I don't want anyone knowing we're up here. Maman sat in her chair, needlework in hand since breakfast, though I doubt she'd made more than a dozen stitches in the three hours since, but it gave her hands company as she fretted. We lived in the Place Royale, one of the oldest neighborhoods in the heart of the city. After the revolution, it was known as the Place des Vosges, but after the, with the reinstatement of the monarchy, it was the Place Royale once more. Some of the oldest and wealthiest families in Paris lived there, and Maman was certain of the, uh, that if the Prussians took Paris, our neighborhood would be a prime target for their cruelty. I thought she attributed more importance to our neighborhood than it deserved. There was no strategic advantage to invading our peaceful little corner of Paris, aside from the riches they could plunder. But it didn't seem enough for me. The Maman was convinced that if they breached the walls of Paris, it would mean our heads. Despite Maman's concerns, Papa would not retreat to the country as our neighbors had done. For weeks, he refused to think the Prussians would succeed in getting as far as Paris. Now that it seemed likely they would, he said he would not abandon our home to the invaders, even if it meant risking our lives. Our manservants, Gustave and Philippe, would they defend us if the, uh, against, uh, against the mob when the Prussians invaded? More likely they would betray us if they thought they could save themselves. For this reason, Papa distrusted them and anyone else of the working class. The defeat at Sedan had, uh, and the rumored displacement of the emperor made this possibility one seemingly absurd, now entirely probable. Are you worried, Papa? Little Gislaine asked from Maman's side. Not in the least. The emperor will have the Prussians well in hand before long. Mark my words, Papa said as he paced the floor. Antoine, my little brother, nodded enthusiastically from his chair. We spent the last hour reading one of our father's favorite tomes. He longed to follow in Papa's footsteps so badly, I wondered he didn't stitch himself permanently to Papa's side. Gislaine, the baby, was curled up next to Maman on her settee, Mama's precious little puppet, complete with gold ringlets. It wasn't hard to understand Maman's preference for her. And she was a sweet enough, I couldn't begrudge her the attentions that her, her that preferment afforded. I was the oldest, born a girl when they had so desperately wanted an heir, and too strong-willed to be a pet to Maman. 
At first, I think they viewed me as a bit of an experiment in child rearing. They practiced their parenting skills on me, with much help from a string of governesses, of course. But it was 10 long, disappointing years before their precious boy was born. I think they rather grew to resent me during that time. Once Antoine was born, followed soon after by Gislaine, that resentment grew to in, into a usually comfortable indifference. In Antoine, they had an heir, and in Gislaine, they had their sweet, biddable beauty. I was pretty enough, they're red-haired and freckled, which made Maman lament for my marriage prospects. It was lonely at times, being the overlooked child, but it had the chief virtue of affording me a measure of independence that more, that more attentive parents wouldn't have given a young woman of 21. <laughs> yeah. So that is the introduction to our friend Lisette. Could you also maybe read a little bit to introduce Micheline? Okay, let's find that. All right. Yeah. I sat upright in bed. The nightgown that had once been uh, Maman's now doused in sweat. It was a solid minute before I realized the air raid sirens had been in my dreams, and I didn't have to drag Noemi and Sylvie down to the cellars of the, our little two-story building uh, to wait out the bombing. The war had been over for months, but the nightmares made it feel as though it never ceased. I looked over at little Noemi, who had crawled into my bed at some point in the night. Her red ringlets framed a face that had been better suited for a gallery in the Louvre than our apartment above a bistro, with peeling dark green paint in the far reaches of Paris. She took deep, even breaths and looked as though she was uh, the world was the furthest thing from her mind, a long-forgotten ghost of a memory that would only come back as a twinge of uh, sadness rather than a tidal wave of grief. I couldn't take solace in that in, in, in much, but Noemi's innocence was my safe haven. I would have given my very life to protect it. Nightmares again, Sylvie asked from her bed on the opposite side of the room. Yes, go back to sleep, darling, I bade gently. I hope that it was uh, uh, I hope that it was just before dawn, but my bedside clock told me it was still the middle of the night. We'd all sleep better if you moved into Maman's room, you know, Sylvie said, covering her head with a pillow. I've half a mind to take it myself if you won't. Her voice was muffled by the pillow, but even uh, but even the thick puff of goose down didn't dampen her vitriol. She was twelve, soon to be thirteen, and grew more challenging with each passing day. I sighed and tried uh, tried to take solace in that too. I was just her age when the war broke out, and didn't have the luxury of being a difficult teenager. Noemi, at the tender age of eight, was a more restful company. Part of me should have been grateful that Sylvia had the chance at a proper adolescence, but the raising of her was left to me, and she seemed determined to make up for my lost opportunity, even if it meant driving me insane in the process. You will not, I said, summoning the authority of a sister seven years her elder. It is Maman's room and will remain so until she comes home. Sylvie shot me daggers. Twelve-year-olds really were a pestilence. She'd done the hard work of coming to grips with Maman's disappearance where I was not yet able. It had been different with Papa. His death records were conclusive. Killed in action at near Sedan. We'd all accepted the news of his death with grief, but without the burden of uncertainty. It was a rare family in Paris that hadn't lost a father, brother, husband, or son to the war. Others had waited for years for their loved ones to be released from the prisoner of war camps in hopes that something would be left of the man they'd sent off to war. If a family had only been called to sacrifice one, they were counted among the lucky. And thank you. That was Amy K. Runyon reading from A Bakery in Paris. Now, Amy, I understand you're also an adjunct instructor for the Drexel University MFA in Creative Writing Program. 
I am indeed. And where is that located? Is it a remote program or or? It is a remote program. The Drexel campus is located in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is a lovely city. I haven't had the chance to actually visit the campus yet. Um, but yeah, it's a, a one of the best creative writing programs in the whole country. And it really serves a great purpose because it isn't just designed to train people to become creative writing professors, which, you know, you think a lot of people go in thinking, well, this is the great way to go about becoming an author. I can get a degree in creative writing and teach as a professor in a creative writing program and then have the time that professors would usually use for research to write books. The problem is those jobs are very hard to come by, very hard to come by. So um, whereas a lot of programs, they basically send out your acceptance letter with a caveat that they cannot assure, assume or they cannot assure you're going to get a job. So, um, but the difference is with Drexel is that they are training you to become an author. They're training you how to write um, publishable material um, because it's a, honestly, it's easier to become a published novelist than to get a job as a professor um, <laughs> in many domains anymore. Um, I'm married to a professor. I know how hard academia can be. And so um, I think that it's doing a great job of preparing um, authors to be, to be, um, to pr prepare a new generation of authors for the complexities of the market, um, because they don't just talk about craft and, and um, craft and you know the talent of the writing, which is you know obviously the main focus. It's very important, but they take the students to New York for um, part of the residency. Um, it's a low residency program. They introduce them to publishing professionals, and they get to learn about the industry, which is really the the other part of the equation that's quite hard is learning how to break in and the right co connections that you have to make um, in order to uh, break into the industry. Well, let's talk about how you broke in. How, well, how did you um, get honestly, your start? By, yeah. um, by random run of luck, um, really, I, did, you know, I toyed with the, the novel that would become promise to the crown off and on for 10 years and when I was 33 and my children were finally old enough to sleep through the night I decided I was going to claim two hours a day to myself regardless of what else had to be done I got two hours a day to myself to write and um, after about six months I had a pretty bad draft of a book and then I edited it made it better and I went to a writing conference um, I went to Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers and I made some great connections there and got a mentor and started querying agents and it took about six months and I got an agent um, and it you know, and we got a book deal about four months after that and so it was really just through um, the old slog you know I didn't have any connections to the writing industry before I started writing at all. Um, so I was fortunate enough to make the right connections through a conference and it worked out really, really well. And um, I understand you're very, you're a member of a couple of different groups, um, associations, yes. writers groups. Can you tell us about those and what, you know, what benefit you get from that, those associations? Um, well, a historical novel society is in, in, you know, really indispensable if you're going to write historical fiction because they're one of the most well-regarded um, associations for historical authors. They, they have a magazine and they review hundreds of books every year. It's amazing that they're able to do what they do um, with a volunteer staff. 
and um, they're, you know, they're highly regarded. Their conference, um, they have a conference every other year of the U.S. This year it was in San Antonio, um, and a couple years from now it'll be in Las Vegas. I didn't get to go to the one in San Antonio. I may have to go to the one in Vegas because I've missed it for so long. Um, though I'm not a huge fan of Vegas, I hate to say it, but um, hopefully I can avoid the casinos. Um, but, yeah. It, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's great because you, you find not only because, you know, like Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers, which is my home conference, it's my, it's my, where I met, you know, so many of the authors starting out, it's really, you know, authors of all genres and a lot of um, authors who are opting for um, independent publishing um, or self-publishing which is, you know, it's an uh, it's a great way, but you know, the traditional route with a publisher and an agent, it's a, just a very different process. So it's nice to have a group of people that can empathize with what you're going through um, in that process, for sure. And then, um, you know, Women's Fiction Writers of America, um, it's a newer organization, it's a grassroots organization that has really grown to be huge and respectable. They have a, a they have multiple retreats and conferences throughout the year um and they have a really respected award um that you know they have one for uh debut fiction and one for established authors and um i got to go to their uh, retreat in, in uh, albuquerque a few years back where i actually wrote the final pages of um daughters of the night sky and that was you know so that's always a meaningful place i point out every time we drive down i drive through albuquerque quite often because my husband is a professor at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And so we drive between the two places quite often. So every time I see the, you know, old town Albuquerque, I wave to the hotel where I finished Daughters of the Night Sky. And um, (laughs) yeah. And, you know, it's just, you know, I think the the biggest value that one gets from these associations um, is, you know, just a sense of community. And that was the thing that surprised me so much because I'd been in theater, you know, in high school and college, and it's so competitive. And, you know, when people tell you to break a leg, they mean it. And, <laughs> literally, um, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Literally, they mean it. And um, you don't have that kind of competition because we're all trying to lift each other up in the writing industry. And I found that the few people that seem hyper competitive don't tend to make it as well because oh. they're not supporting. They're not supporting the community and therefore aren't being supported in turn, at least not as much as they could be. And um yeah, I think that's a, the one, the biggest, because I just expected it to be sort of cold and cutthroat, and it's the exact opposite. Wow, that is good to know. That is good to know. Yeah. So what's the uh, tall poppies? Oh, the tall poppies, that is, um, they are a marketing collective that started, gosh, I think they started, I joined before Promise to the Crown came out. So I think I joined in 2015. I was lucky enough to be invited by Kate Moretti, who is one of the founding members. Um, and she's a suspense writer and very talented. Um, and Ann Garvin, who's the, the founder of the whole thing, is just a hoot. And she just had a, ba- a book out the same day as A Bakery in Paris called um, there, There's No Coming Back from This. And she did great research about costuming in Hollywood. And it's just fascinating. And I can't wait to read it. Um, but it, it is a marketing collective because Ann... The founder, back in, I think it was about 2012 or 2013, she wondered, you know, what can she, as a woman in Madison, Wisconsin, do to disrupt publishing, you know, to get her voice heard? Because it's hard, especially for women, 
to uh, to make their voices heard in publishing and to get attention. It seems like you know there's more and mo- more and more books out every year, and to be heard above the 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 noise is just impossible. So she wanted to make a collective of authors who didn't have ties to the big houses in New York necessarily, though that we have a few New Yorker authors who have been members and they're wonderful. But um, you know these are women who are not necessarily movers and shakers um, as far as you know the their connections to the industry, but. They, you know, they, they have, there are a lot of women that have, like, we have, um, we have a member who is, um, important, uh, in the Mighty, Bla- uh, Mighty Blaze podcast. Um, and, you know, we have Hank Flippy Ryan, who has got her fingers in so many different blogs, um, like, you know, Jungle Red Riders and career authors. And, um, so we use these connections to help lift each other up and to get, to help support all of our books. And, you know, it's evolved a lot from the beginning. Um, and we, we, you know, we have, um, it used to be that everybody had numerous jobs and it got to be where it was too much. And so, um, now we, you know, uplift everybody's, um, releases on launch day. And, but then we use our own connections to help each other out instead of having like official jobs. But, you know, it's one of those things that has, changed and evolved over the course of the about 10 years that it's been in existence. That sounds really cool. That's great. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And then um, just looking in your, your bio, there's also the Pikes Peak Writers. Is, the, is that? Yes, that's it. based out of Colorado Springs because I was living in Colorado Springs when I first got my start. Um, and I've moved. I'm now in Estes Park, so quite a bit northwest of there. Um, but, you know, it's another mountain town. Very nice. And, um, there, you know, there, I got to, I went to the conference once and I got to meet some amazing authors there. Um, I never got to be very active because I moved out of the area pretty soon, uh, afterwards, but I think that the free membership and just a great group of people, they have a wonderful contest. It used to be called the Zebulon. I don't know if it's still called that anymore, but, um, it attracts some great people. They attract some great people. So definitely uh, worthwhile. You know, there are so many conferences out there for writers. Some of them are world-class. Some of them are terrible. Um, and it's, <laughs> and it's how so can you tell the t- difference? Yeah. Because they, <laughs> yeah. And they're all expensive if you look at it. I mean, when you figure in travel costs, and, of course, you've got registration fees, and there's always little things like you can get pitch sessions that cost extra and, you know, little add-ons and master classes. And so they're all expensive and it's kind of heartbreaking to, to pay, you know, a thousand dollars or more for a conference that doesn't meet your expectations. Um, but I'm fortunate enough that in Colorado, we have at least three. Um, you know, we've got Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers. We had Pikes Peak Writers and Northern Colorado Writers, I believe. I'm probably not getting that name right. I haven't had the opportunity to go to that one, but I've heard nothing but good things. That's that's great. You're listening to Writer's Voices. Our guest today is Amy K. Runyon, and she is the author of A Bakery in Paris. Caroline, do you have any more questions? Well, I was just going to say I can't imagine the amount of research that she would, that she had to do to write some of these novels because it's just amazing to me. And how does how does she keep track of all that? <laughs> um, well, you know, it's yeah, it it, it is a, a challenge, but uh, you know, you become that's a reason why a lot of historical authors 
specialize in a field. Like you have Pam Jenoff, who writes love songs to um, to Europe, to Jewish Europe, um, in her uh, in her books, and she is a World War II specialist. You have you know the great Philippa Gregory, who's a tutor specialist, um, and of course they all you know they all ch um, change things up from time to time, but they are. Um, you know, they, they tend to specialize so that they become experts in their field, like any academic. Um, I've moved around a little bit more, um, though certainly I had a stint in World War II, and I get to, you know, reuse some of my research here and there, which is always very gratifying to be able to reuse it. But, you know, you, I take, taking lots of copious notes and, and outlining extensively helps a great deal to be able to um, – to, to be able to uh, keep things straight from from project to project. Yeah, um, I think we've had Pam on Writer's Voices, I think, a couple of times. And, yeah, like you mentioned, yeah, she is. She's World lovely. War II stories seem to have a wide readership. and um, But it's hard sometimes, I think, to come up with a new and creative – there's new and creative way to tell a story about World War II. So – or yeah. a hidden angle, like the school yeah. for German brides, you know, hidden angles. Like I was, you know, it, I think as an artist, we all burn out of the topic. It's like, I've done World War II. I, I'm done. <laughs> um, but, you know, with, when Ger the whole idea for German brides came to me, I'm like, oh, I can go back. It's dark. It's going to be not a fun eight months while I write that book. But I can I, I can do it because I thought it was fighting. It's like, you know, Nazi Stepford Wives. It's you know, it was compelling. It was very oh, compelling. Yeah. Now I understand that your next book, you're moving to contemporary fiction. Well, not okay. permanently. Okay. It's like a sideline. <laughs> like I'm, I'm going to have two. I'm for, I'm branching out. I'm not like I'm not taking a fork in the okay. road. I'm branching okay. out. Um. So because I have another historical coming okay. out next year as well. Um, in, yeah, in February of 24, I have a book called The Memory of Lavender and Sage, which is my love letter to Provence. If a bakery in Paris is my love letter to Paris, um, uh, The Memory of Lavender and Sage is my love letter to Provence. And it's about a woman who has never been really welcomed in her own family, who has the opportunity to go to Provence to learn more about her mother and her ancestry. Um, her mother dies when she's at a very tender age, and she has to... Um, you know, come to, uh, she, she learns a lot about her past history. And it's also, you know, a kind of a love letter to the village, the French village, which is a dying entity. Um, you know, you have the brain drain going on. And so it's a, we have the same thing in small towns in the U.S., but these villages um, that have been there for millennia, literally, you know, some of them well over a thousand years, are dying out. They're becoming ghost towns because all the young people are moving to the big cities for jobs. And, um, the people just, they, they can't sustain a living in these villages. And so it's um, talking a bit about the brain drain, leaving the villages and losing that way of life. And of course the, the death knell for any village is when they, when the, um, the authorities decide they're going to start busing the kids. If it's like, yeah, you've only got 23 kids in the whole village. We're going to start busing them to the next town over. That's a death knell for the village because the families move. And, um, it, you know, it's really heartbreaking. Um, and so the, it is, you know, my four, it was supposed to be fun escapist um, women's fiction became a little bit more serious. But and it deals with a lot of family drama. But, you know, there's also the light side and there's recipes <laughs> and um, all because it's me and, you know, lots about herbs and a little bit of magical realism. 
And now, it's great do fun. all of your books incorporate recipes? No. Okay. No, not all of them. The last two, it's really becoming a, a, a <laughs> thing for me, foodie fiction. So I had a baker in my very first book. Um, and my editor, John Scull Emilio at Kensington, said he always loved it when he got to the Elizabeth <laughs> chapters because she was, there's so much of her, me and her. And, um, yeah, B- Baker was one of the most important esteemed people in a town back in the 1660s, especially. We can't overstate the importance of bread in the French diet. And the further back you go, the more true that is. They would eat bread and soup, and the soup could either be hearty and rich and nourishing, or it was watery and terrible, depending on the family and their, their circumstances at the time. Exactly. And um, my next historical okay. is actually called Mademoiselle Eiffel. It's um, 10 year, basically t- takes place 10 years after the first timeline in a bakery in Paris. And it's to do with Claire Eiffel, the daughter of Gustave Eiffel of Eiffel Tower fame, the famous architect. And she became her father's assistant and right-hand woman after her mother died when Claire was only 14. And she lived with him for the rest of his life. And even though she got married and had three children, um, she was basically devoted to her father for the rest of his life. And I thought her story was fascinating. I got to do research uh, at the, in the family archives at the Musée d'Orsay. Oh, wonderful. I love the Musée d'Orsay. That's one of my favorite places. <laughs> it's amazing. I got to go. I got to walk across the gallery when it was oh, empty. Oh, wow. That was amazing. Wow. Um, Caroline, do yeah. you have some closing words for us today? Well, <laughs> yes. Actually, you know, in in war, nobody wins really. But this book exactly. shows how. But this this book shows how some survivors can better their lives, change their lives, and really, you know, add to the add to this. And this was, like I said, this is a page turner. So I I encourage everybody to read this. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate <laughs> and I want to add so one last quote that I found about that I thought fit <laughs> fit this. Baking is cheaper than therapy. <laughs> absolutely uh, well to quote, yeah, the late, right. the, to quote the late great julie powell at a day at, after a day where nothing and i mean nothing goes right it is such a comfort to go into the kitchen and know that if you add butter and sugar to chocolate uh, it will get and there is some comfort yeah it's, it's comforting and baking is my own therapy that and growing herbs and that sort of thing um, yeah, I've got a, I've got an herb garden up on my little pat, patio up there. And that, so that figures into the memory of lavender and sage. And so it's great to be able to put these things, you know, the, the, these elements of my own personality. Well, we're glad you do. And it, it was a, really a fun read. Thanks. And we thank you so much for being with us today, Amy. <laughs> thank you so much. See you all I appreciate next week it. on Writer's Voices.